0: The officer at the time he said, No, I hope in hell he said, uh if if there had been a murder, you'd have opened the door, bang, you'd have been dead. You know, he said, Whoever's done this wanted to send out a warning. He said, and that's what they've done. So and that's what it was all about. So it was never an attempted murder, it was always a warning. Now how you can give a warning where you stab someone twenty odd times yeah. with various blades and think they're gonna survive is a bit strong but Either they knew what they were doing or they actually didn't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know, you know, so
1: Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. And the voice you just heard is a best selling author, Darren Barden, who in nineteen ninety six was at home. He was in his late twenties, it was late at night, there was a knock at the door, and two men stabbed him twenty times. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, if it's a true crime podcast and you're talking about criminals and people who've been on the wrong side of the law, what's unusual about that? Well, it's unusual because the twist is that Darren Barden is a straight goer. He has never been involved in crime. It was a professional hit, but they got the wrong guy. Darren has been on an amazing journey. He talks about depression and mental health and PTSD so openly and with such insight and in a way that I've never heard anyone talk about it in public before. So I'm very, very lucky to have him as a guest. It was a very wise Terry Ellis who suggested that we got together. I'm so glad that we did. And there are consequences to violence and consequences to attacks. And there's no self-pity in any of this. It's amazing what Darren has to say. He's a great speaker. His book's really good. I will put everything Darren Barden related in the notes. I felt very emotional listening back to this one. The conversation starts with a knock on the door in 1996 that changed Darren Barden's life.
0: In, on a Monday night in uh, October, the first week of October, there was a knock on the door. And two guys, as I, I come down, I was actually asleep at the time because I was doing the extra work. Um, my wife was actually with my son in another room because he was teething. So he was crying and you know she was keeping him away from me so I could sleep. Um, got the knock on the door. I jumped up in me underpants, run down the stairs and just opened the door. there was two guys stood directly in front of me. And as I looked out, the one to the right then looked along to my left. And he just nodded. So, And that's all it was. It turns out from an eyewitness statement that there was actually four people in total. Two came to my house. One waited at the end of the road. And then one waited with a getaway car, with the car ready to go. So so the two guys then, um, they just stepped forward. And from that moment on, all I remember doing was putting my hands up in front of me to defend myself. So my door had opened, my front door had opened inwards towards me. So I was stood with the door on my right hand side and the guys just then stepped forward. And then that's basically where they started pummeling me with, I thought at the time I was being beaten up. I didn't realise I'd been stabbed. There was no knowledge that I'd been stabbed at this point. It wasn't until much later I realised. Did it hurt? No, no. And uh, I've spoken to several people since um, who have been stabbed. And there's a, I've been informed by doctors that actually there's an adrenaline rush. so quite often you don't feel pain uh, with the stabbings because of the adrenaline so I'm not saying that's for everybody it's just the information that I've been given and the people I've spoken to so some people may disagree with that they may well have felt pain but I was at the time I I remember putting my hands up in front of me and I can sort of remember taking a bit of a beating but the next thing I don't know if I passed out I was knocked out I was unconscious whatever it may have been I'm not sure but I went from standing with my hands out in front of me to sort of in a fetal position on the floor with my hands over my head and just feeling my head being banged from side to side, side to side, just constantly knocking on my head. But So this is what made me think I've been beaten up. And then it just stopped. It literally just stopped. And I can remember looking out and even to this day, the memory of that moment will stay with me forever. It's a bit like watching a TV program where they blur the faces out on the TV. Yeah, Their shoes and their face, in my memory, even to now, has got that blurring over it. Like it's... Significant. Somewhere in my head, that's significant. For what reason, I don't know. But they just stopped and they turned and walked away. And nothing was said by you or them. No? no, nothing at all. I was screaming, apparently. I was screaming for hell. I think I called police, ambulance, fire brigade type shouts, you know, into yeah. the streets. Yes, yeah. um, yeah, so I just, I then just sat there and they walked away. And once again, from a time point of view, I don't know if this was 15 seconds, five minutes. I haven't got a clue what sort of time scales we're talking about here. But all I can remember, the most important thing to me was I could just remember the blows to the head. I mean, my head was being banged from side to side and I was trying to stop that happening. Didn't have a clue that my chest had been cut, my back, my legs. None of that I knew about. It was just literally the head. So that's what made me think all the time, I've just been beaten up. So they then stop, they then walk away. At that point, and I don't know if I'd done it with my hands or my feet, I slammed the door shut. How the door went shut, I don't know, because the lock had actually been broken with the force where they came in and pushed me back in.
1: Mm.
0: I then crawled through. I was in a little hallway. I then had to crawl through the living room. Bearing in mind, we didn't have mobile phones back then. I then crawled through the living room to the back of the living room where the phone was and picked it up and started dialing 999. So at this point, as you can imagine, my wife was upstairs with a one-year-old. She can hear all the kerfuffle. Mm. And she believed that there was a nutcase that had knocked on the door and was screaming. And I'd shut them out basically. So she hadn't at this point realised I was being attacked. So I'll get on the phone, dial 999, and it's at this point she then realises it's me, it's been attacked. So I'm calling for help down to the police, move um, fire, wherever I was asking for everybody, you know, to come. Uh, the operator was brilliant. She was absolutely brilliant, the woman. Um If everyone comes to meet her again, it'd be great because, you know, they're brilliant at what they do, yeah. these operators. And then, my wife appeared. I'm sitting there at this point, bleeding to death, basically. So, she then walks down the stairs with a one-year-old in her hands, not realising at this point she was walking through blood, my blood, right. on her feet and her toes. Oh. You said not tap the feet.
1: That's right, you can tap your feet. <laughs> and you can take your time as well, you're okay.
0: The, the hard part is it's not, it's not what happened to me. Is the problem oh, yeah. is the impact on on wendy not so much george he was one years old at the time you know so yeah. he wouldn't have known any different really you know and he's he's got no recollection of it whatsoever which is great from our point of view so wendy walks through the room sits down on the edge of the sea i'm sat on the floor and then lo and behold one of the funniest moments ever i'm sitting there bleeding to death waiting for the police to turn up the ambulance to turn up wendy's sitting there in complete shock i've asked her for um Something to stop the bleeding. She went out to the kitchen. She got a tea towel. I, I touched my head with it and it was just saturated at that point. So then George, being one years old at the time, because I'm trying to keep the blood, so I've got my hands above my eyes, trying to keep the blood out of my eyes, he thinks I'm playing peekaboo. Oh, God. So he then covers his eyes going, boo, like this. So this this obviously completely horrendous moment then brought a smile to your face, you know what I mean? He was like, bloody hell, how the it uh, mouths of babes as they say you know yeah. in this act, in this case it was a, an action so anyway, we sat there which i believe was he felt like an attorney there were some bangs on the door people call him uh us by name uh, turned out to be neighbors who had heard the screams and the shouts come along um they at this point um they then went away we're still waiting for the police to arrive eventually there's a knock at the door they're calling police they don't know who we are so they're shouting police Wendy's screaming at them go away she didn't believe they were the police you know um, eventually we let the police in and Wendy did and I'm sat so I'm sat probably six yards away from the front door you now maybe maybe eight yards something like that And I'm just sat there in my pants or blood pouring out of me everywhere from my back my head my chest you know legs um, and I'm just I actually felt like I was actually in a Pool of blood because when my pants got soaked with blood and it was freezing, I was so cold. Never, I've never felt cold like that before or since. So, yes. Yeah, so then there was police flying around everywhere, and the, the police kept saying to me. And when they talk to you in these situations, and sometimes you watch it on the telly as well, they always using your name constantly. You know, if I was to ask you a question, I'd say, "Do you know this?" But they always don't what do you know about a red car, Darren? And they were always even your name would always be in there. I can remember the, I can't remember the questions, I just remember that part of it. So Darren, what who do you know drives a red car? Who do you know? I, I ain't got a clue what they're talking about. This red car is such a big thing to him. But the eyewitness had seen you know, the guy was walking his dog, he heard all the kerfuffle, he then walked his dog back to his flat and then went to a telephone box. And bearing in mind this is not a year of mobile phones. So yeah. he then went to a telephone box and he seen a getaway car which we believe, was a red sports car of some description. And that's what the importance was from a police point of view. They wanted to know quickly who I knew. They didn't know anyone about anything about a red sports car. So so then we waited. Um, at some point while I was waiting for the police, I made a, a bad decision, which I've always regretted, which was phoning my mum and dad. So I phoned my dad. And bear in mind, this was Monday. It actually happened. The first 999 call went in at three minutes past 12. And the second one was at six minutes past 12. And we don't, we think mine was a three minutes past and the eyewitness was a six minutes past. And what night did you say? Was a Monday? Monday night, yeah. So, um, for some reason, I sat there and I, I decided I wanted to phone my dad. So I picked the phone up and the operator was still there, they, they stay on the line. And she said to me, um, What do you want? So I need to phone my dad. She said, You need to put the phone down, count to 10, and dial the number you want somehow I've done it I don't know how I did that I don't even know if I counted yeah. to 10 but I phoned the number whether they use it to trace the call or be able to connect to the call I don't know I phoned my dad and I uh, just said look dad I've been beaten up can you come round so a couple of strange things happened my mum never ever drove anywhere unless it was home from the pub when my dad had had a drink for some reason they went out to the car and my mum drove that night that would never have happened ever you know even to this day very rarely she would she drive but that night she no no questions it wasn't a debate yeah. So it's just a strange thing you know so they arrived uh, by the time they got there um, there was blue and white tape all around the house um, this is another hard moment to talk about there's, there's a few things the effect on my wife and, and family and the effect on my mum and dad as well so it's always hard to talk about course, rather than the impact on me so as my mum arrives the police said you can't come in and we've done all we can for him which indicates to her I was a goner so she was having none of this she was she wanted to come in you know there's no no amount of police were going to stop my mum coming in, you know, I was 29 years old, I think, at the time, you know, yeah. so, but you're still their little boy. So, you know, they came through the blue and white tape, came in, and as they walk in through the door, they can basically see me at the end of the living room, sitting there, just basically bleeding to death, and they rushed upstairs to Wendy and George, who were upstairs, bedroom, so they went upstairs. The reason I say it's hard to talk about is, I, I, I wish my mum had never seen it, you know, because I was part of it, I was the, you know, the, the victim of the crime, I didn't have to see it. You know, I know what I see and what I felt, but I didn't have to see the result of it. Whereas my mum and dad and Wendy did; they see that, and that's probably harder to live with than what I live with. Do you see what I mean through that?
1: That that does make sense. Uh, there's yeah. part of me that wonders uh, 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 that had they have just heard about it, it would have been would it have been le- any less painful? Um, yeah, for me, I. I I think it would have been.
0: And this is why I do, I do regret making that phone call. Yeah. You know, listen, you can't go back and change things. You know, um, you can't go back and undo the call. I made the call and that, that was it. And, you know, and ultimately going on from that moment, it was good to have them there. You know, they were helped. they helped with George while Wendy came in the ambulance. You know, we just left me and Wendy. There was no, sign about who, who we're leaving in the house, locking up the house. You know, you don't... We just we just left the house, you know, in the back of an ambulance. So, but... So, eventually, the ambulance turned up. So, bearing in mind, this is a Monday night at midnight. Probably not the busiest night for ambulance drivers, you know. And this is the one thing I've always found strange. Whether the police communicated with the ambulance or not, I don't know. Whether they said, look, there's a serious situation, but we're trying to make sure it's all calmed down before you get here. I don't know that either. Um, but nevertheless... Um, Police had turned up, managed to blue and white tape it all. My mum and dad had driven from the other side of town and got there, and they were now upstairs. And then the ambulance turned up. So it's quite a while. I don't know what time the ambulance turned up. I ain't got a clue, but yeah. So they came in, started um, sort of dressing me, wound, well stopping me bleeding. Uh, the one in my back goes across my shoulder. You could put your whole hand in. It was that, it was that thing. That was the worst one. Apparently, the angle it went in and. I'm not a medical person, but it missed some of the vital organs by millimeters. So I was quite lucky in that sense. So, yeah, so they, they started dressing me. There was a, quite a funny moment down the front of my shin. There was a, what looked like a, probably about six or seven inch gash going down the front of my shin. So they dressed all this, this gash up, and I'll come back to that in a minute when we get to the hospital. They then put me on this. They were brilliant, by the way. The two ambulance guys, absolutely brilliant. They then put me onto this, what I can only describe it as a metal frame, but a chair shape. They put me in that, wrapped me up in blankets because I was absolutely freezing. Um, you know, I'll try not to swear again then, but I was I was so, so cold. And like I say, it's, it's a cold that I've never, ever felt since. No matter how bad it's been, I've never felt that cold. They put me on this chair, wrapped me up in the blankets and started to wheel me out. Now, the whole time I've been sitting there at the bottom of my stairs, there was what I thought was a cricket bat that I'd been hit with, like a children's size cricket bat. That's what I thought I'd been beaten up with. And that's what I thought I was looking at. When they wheeled me out, as they got to it, what I realised was this was, it turns out to be an 18-inch meat cleaver, but it was in a cardboard and cling film holster. So it was just laying, they hadn't used it, they'd dropped it and left it behind. So it was the one knife that hadn't been used on me. So out of the four that were there. Um, and it was at that point, as I was wheeled, being wheeled out in the ambulance, they, I realised I'd been stabbed. As soon as I see that knife, that's what at the moment it hit. It was like, I've been stabbed, you know. And then I shouted a few expletives out, you know, I've been stabbed, I've been stabbed. And as they wheeled me out into the, the cold October night, it was a beautiful, clear evening. And I'm probably, I don't know, 25, 50 feet, or I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet away from the ambulance. They wheeled me across. Uh, it, this was a moment, as far as I was concerned, I was gone. So it was a, a like I say, really cold night. The sky was incredible, incredible, like bluey black. And the stars were out and it was really beautiful. But I just thought that was it. That was my moment in the ambulance and off we went. You know, so I, I just saw sort of, that little moment for me was my turning point. And now when I see a night like that and we'll get them soon over the next couple of months, you know, I have a little smile because it was a moment that actually it didn't happen, what I thought was. Yeah. So it's actually quite a nice moment. Um, on the way to the hospital, um, I've never been in an ambulance before so apparently I kept saying to the um I offered the policewoman who came with us by the way I said to her once she sat on my lap I'd be wife there as well but I was just joking as I always did and um she said no she was fine where she was sitting but apparently I kept complaining that I wanted to know if we drunk jumped any red lights I, I wanted to know did we have the blue lights on and things like that but apparently I got on everyone's nerves in there and um The ambulance driver shouted back, tell him we've just gone through a red light, see if that'll quiet him down. (laughs) So, because I I, I wanted to, I don't know, maybe I wanted it to be exciting. So, but when we arrived at the hospital, it it changed. It became very serious. Uh, I was given an armed policeman. So there was an armed policeman there. Um, What the police had quickly realised, this was obviously something that was like a professional hit. They didn't know who I was and they didn't know if they were coming back to finish the job. So my dad with me, They'd taken Wendy away at this point to try and help her out. Then they came for me, they wheeled me round, they started stitching me up. And I, they stopped counting the stitches at about 40 stitches, I think they stopped. The, the one in my back, they had to stitch inside first and then stitch on the outside to hold it together. Um, I was quite lucky going across the hole of my chest, and they'd cut me, but what they do is they put two blades into a standing knife and they separate them with a match so that when it cuts you, it can't be sewn up. So it's too difficult because what it does, it squashes yeah. the, the skin in the middle. So they'd cut me across the chest with that. But lucky enough, it just scratched across. And all that happened is they broke the blade off just in my chest here, a tiny little part of the blade that snapped off in my chest there. So I was quite lucky with that side of things. Um, but I had quite a lot of stitches in my legs, I uh, scratches across my back. Um, but my head wounds were the most serious. And I had seven serious wounds in the head. But unfortunately, what it was with the with the headworms, is where I was being stabbed in the same place more than once. So it looked like to the hospital, it, it just repeatedly stabbed me. It could have been five, six, seven times all in the same place in quick succession. So that was one wound. It, it could have been multiple actual stab wounds, if you like, in that same spot. So I had quite a bad two-inch gash across me, back of my head here. So in total, there was three different blades used on me, which meant one of the perpetrators had a blade in each hand. So he had no intention of beating me up at all.
1: I, I want to ask about the notion of a professional hit. Yeah. I'm not being crass when I say this or flipping in any way. Um, did the police explain that to you at the time? Did this, there's an armed policeman here for your protection or were you told further down the line?
0: Absolutely further down the line. Probably, I would say, three or four days after. Oh. So um, there was also something that happened in the hospital. Um, there's also a, a mental health unit within the hospital. Oh. Um, and one of the patients from there had actually got out of the unit and was walking around the grounds. So basically, from a police point of view, there was a suspicious per- a suspicious person walking around the grounds. Um, that brought about a bit more security. They moved me from one room to another because until they, they found out, it was actually was that stressful else. for you? That must have been stressful. At no, not really. I don't, I don't. I don't even know if I was fully aware of everything going on. Right. You know, I remember so much detail, but not the emotional side of it. You know, for example, the nurse that was, they were having to shave my head and and stitch in places and they were injecting me with this stuff to numb the pain of the stitch. The injection was so painful. You know, it's really, really painful. And in the end, I said, can you just sew me up? Because I I can't take the pain of the injection. So they did. They stopped putting the, I don't know what you call them, but the uh, antiseptic, if you like, around the, around the, her uh, head and just sewed me up straight away but then she said to me oh she said you're bearing in mind i'm i've still got blood coming out of me dre- they're starting to dress me and then she said oh you'll get compensation for this And i remember like, my wife was there at the times of being sewn up and i thinking, what are you talking about i don't even know i don't even know what's happened to me really and then she said there's ain't called the uh criminal injuries compensation you'll 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 get compensation and i i, I really found it to be strange and i, I remember the nurse saying it what she was doing she was just actually making me feel better but it just felt like a strange thing to say and ask or mention you know i didn't i didn't get why she would mention that you know so and then eventually they put me in this um in this ward with five old girls in the ward and where they put me in the corner so i couldn't be seen from any doors and things like that Um, but word had got around the hospital that something major had happened in the town so i then then been told that obviously um you know your safety is paramount. So I was just laying in this bed and then a guy came down uh, with a silver briefcase, like a camera, old camera case. And uh, he said to the lady, the ward sister, wherever she may be, said something about a toner for their fax machine. And the nurse said, we haven't got a fax machine. So I thought now they, they've come to finish the job. Like, you know, she spoke to him and off he went, this fella. It turns out he was just a maintenance man who wanted to come and be a bit nosy. So yeah. I didn't notice. And then about... I don't know what sort of time, a couple of hours later, I was laying on the bed and an old guy turned up um, to the, the nursing station and said, he looked over and pointed at me, or thought they were pointing at me. And he started to walk towards me. And this guy's got, it was like something out of a Bond film. It was silly, absolutely silly. He's got a beautifully clean, brand new boiler suit on with brown polished brogues. Right. And as he got close, I see his name it was Jim Reeves, like the same as the old time, wartime singer. And I just thought, made up name. You know, this is this guy's come to finish me off. You know, so as he got closer to me, I basically threw myself off the bed, and he sort of ran off. And it turned out he was just a porter and a maintenance man who just came to be nosy. And he used an excuse of fixing a machine behind the bed. They came down to be nosy because it it obviously quite big news at the time locally. But to me, it was that was the only time I realised what was going on. I felt like I was then being
1: intimidated, but
0: clearly I wasn't.
1: Um, and what was the police's take on it? Because I think in terms of, of a professional here, there's part of me that thinks they they could have killed you. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. But so do, do professionals, and I'm just guessing it, do, do they... Did they go around to which it was like a warning? I mean, obviously it was the wrong guy, yeah. but is that what it was? Was it a warning? What did the police yeah. say about that?
0: Well, my initial thoughts were, whoever's done this needs to be caught and they can be charged for attempted murder. I didn't have a clue about law or anything like yeah. that. You know, so I wanted them charged with attempted murder. And uh, Mick Clark, who was the CID officer at the time, he said, no, I hope in hell. He said, uh, if, if there had been a murder, you'd have opened the door, bang, you'd have been dead. You know, he said, whoever's done this wanted to send out a warning. He said, and that's what they've done. So, and that's what it was all about. So it was never an attempted murder. It was always a warning. Now, how you can give a warning where you stab someone 20 odd times yeah. with various blades and think they're going to survive is a bit strong. But either they knew what they were doing or they actually didn't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know, you know, so yeah. which is what they are.
1: And have you ever wondered what their intention was then?
0: I haven't. My wife has, my mum and yeah. dad have. Um, no, for me, it's never it's never bothered me they've never bothered me you know they don't I don't find them significant in the whole thing you know they as I understand it they were given a job to do if that's what happened they come round and, and carried out that job and made a mistake they've got to live with that because they're probably not going to get much work in that field ever again you know so if you're gonna make a mistake that bad I would have thought they would have had to slip away into the shadows for me yeah they're, they're no no I don't need to know I don't need... If they came in here now and said, oh, by the way, it was us. This is why we did it. It doesn't change any of my life. It doesn't change me going forward. It doesn't change the past, you know. So mm. I've got no feelings one way or the other to them. You know, I probably would like to have a conversation, I suppose, you know. Yeah. I'm not sure why and what it achieves. But I certainly believe uh, from my point of view, I don't need to know, really. It's
1: not of any consequence. I, I think that's amazing to hear. And I think it's inspiring. And of course, it's difficult because it's the right thing, isn't it, as well, to move on with your life. You know that there's people who are going to, not that it matters, I don't know who these imaginary people are, but some people might listen and say, well, hang on, if someone did that to me, I'd get revenge. And and I'm, I'm full of admiration for the fact that you don't want revenge, but I need to understand why, I guess, in a way.
0: I think for that reason, for the fact that it wasn't for me. I know in my heart and in my head that wasn't for me. So whoever, if it had been a personal thing, and they'd messed up, you know, if they you know, they've gone overboard. Say I've done something wrong, and they, they should have come around and had a word with me. And actually, they've gone a bit overboard. I think things would have felt different. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I'm not an expert. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know why I feel how I do. But if you was to speak to my dad, for example, at 73 years old now, you know, he would still want revenge. He'd still want to get hold of him and throttle him. You know because they've hurt his little boy you know i mean mum would be the same you know she still she wouldn't be able to cope sitting here now having this conversation you know so it has a larger impact rather than just on me you know so but i don't know why i have got no thoughts to these people whatsoever and i say it's a genuine thing that's how yeah, i am you yeah, know no,
1: i completely believe you know, in so that. it's
0: yeah. it's it's just how it is with me i'm not you know they don't impact on me at all
1: that is, that is
0: quite amazing, you know. I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. So I'm, I'm saying all of this because, you know, at the time we were a young couple, young son, um, you know, we then had to get on with life, Yeah. you know. So I had to go back to work, I had to pay my bills, you know. So at the building society, we had our mortgage with at the time, were awful, they were terrible people. We, we changed that with the help of victim support who worked with us at the time. Um, we worked around that. But we didn't just got back on with life. You know, we dusted. I went away on a couple of holidays. My mum and dad paid for me to go to Spain to get me away for a a week just to settle down. Popped out to see some friends in Holland for a few days um, just to really get myself out of town and just try and get myself sorted and then come back and I went to the doctors at one point and he said, Darren, I've known your family a long time. He said, "Uh, you need to go back to work. And at the time, to be honest, I I didn't really want to work. I couldn't. What I was going through was depression at that point. Right. Didn't know it. I couldn't care if I worked less any any other day ever from that moment onwards at that point. But he was right. All I needed to do was get back to normal. So got myself another job and then carried on with life. Clearly, these people have had an impact on what they had done because that's when some 15 years after I ended up going into my depression and uh, in what's known now as PTSD. Yeah. Um, but it was 15 years after. And that's when it all caught up with me. And all the things we've spoken about now, if there was a decision to be made, would I have to go through that again or the depression? I would go through the stabbing again because the depression those years after was a thousand times worse than any stabbing, okay. but a long, long way.
1: Well, talking through the depression, what happened? What, what were the, I don't know, the symptoms of it? How did it manifest itself? Well, basically we were sort of doing okay. You
0: know, we were, you know, usual family. We'd had, we're on two children. By this point, we were, you know, my wife was doing well from work, the kids were doing fine. Quite a lot of men of my age, you know, in your mid forties, go through this. Yeah. So it does happen, even without the trauma of what happened to us before. So you, you sort of, you're not surplus to requirements, but you, you've got people don't need you as much. You know, everyone's getting on with their lives. You know, in, in your little world, and it, it that's basically what happened with myself. But what it then done somewhere in my subconscious was allow me to draw on everything that happened all those years previous. So I started to get very low, really, really low. I then started to contemplate what had happened and the what ifs and then make up all sorts of scenarios that actually that might have happened. And then you start thinking, well, actually it should have happened. You know, you then you doubt, doubt yourself, you know, you become, you know, to the public and to everybody around me, still the life and soul of the party. Yeah. On my own or sitting there with my wife, complete wreck. You know, I was I was so low. Like, and I had a huge circle of friends, huge, massive, big family, lots of friends. But I was so alone. Like, you know, you, you couldn't talk to anyone, you know, about this situation. You know, and bear in mind, we're going back a few years now. You know, it's a lot. I wouldn't say it's easier for anyone to talk out now, but there's certainly more opportunity for people to talk out yeah, now, which I'm else, very grateful yeah. for. But for me at the time, you're just alone. Very, very alone, and the feeling of surplus to requirements, where you just don't matter to anybody. You're, you're so insignificant in the world. There's no point carrying on, and that's that's where it got me to to that point. The first time it really happened, big star was driving down the M2 in Kent on my way to a meeting. I've got my shirt and tie on and I'm going down, and I just started crying. Just like when I say crying, I'm talking bawling, sobbing. And I ain't got a clue why I'm crying. I'm just crying the eyes out. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? You know. So then I was like, why are you crying, you talk? Sort yourself out, you know. And I started getting angry with myself. So I started punching myself in the head. I, I was headbutting the steering wheel. I was punching the ceiling on the, on the car. I, I was a complete emotional wreck. I was, I was all over the place. I pulled into the motorway services. and I had to hold onto the steering wheel, like to try and compose myself. And I, I just, I had no control over this. No control over this emotional part of me whatsoever. I didn't know why I was crying, why I was in the state I was. Got myself composed had a glass of water, went in and got a bottle of water, come back out, and went on to do me meeting that I was scheduled to do. Drove back home, got home, went to tell Wendy what had happened during the day because it was just an out of the blue moment. Fell apart again. Same sort of thing. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't talk. I was having like real sort of panic attack type stuff but I couldn't speak to her. I couldn't tell her what was wrong so she thought someone had died. She's like, what's going on? And bearing in mind, this, we're talking 15 years after yeah. the attack now so this is, you know, not that it's long gone and forgotten but it's, it's far enough away to not be a problem you know in that sense and we were just doing our normal life and there I was in in an absolute state a real unbelievable state you know of emotional turmoil didn't know what it was composed myself I thought well we're we're monitoring this because why why is this happening we didn't know I didn't know yeah I think other people around me had spotted a few things because people were asking the odd question you know are you okay type thing but they never followed it up no one ever followed it up because they didn't know how to you know and that's the other thing yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I find now yeah. campaign for as well yeah. is that uh, you know um, we, we talk about one in four people having mental health issues in this country I'm a massive believer we need to teach the three in four to look out for the one in four rather than telling the one in four to reach out because as far as I was concerned I didn't reach out to anyone you know and I was, it was the last thing I would have done so that's that's what I try and do now try and educate the three in four rather than the one yeah. in four um, but yeah, so from a depression point of view, it was over a period of two years, and it wasn't twenty four seven. It was the odd day, the odd couple of days. It then got to the point where it was three or four days, you know. But then you'd have a couple of good days, and then all of a sudden you'd slip back. And, and it was as simple as I could open a tin of beans the wrong way round, and that would force you down the road of you know depression. You know, you could see a bar of soap in the shower. I think that's that's the wrong way round, and that would that would trigger it it was ridiculous it was so stupid you know at the time I mean it was obviously very serious but it was like why why are these silly little insignificant things bothering me and then got over it carried on then all of a sudden it would rear its ugly head again and unfortunately for Wendy it was just getting worse and worse and more and more and i had done some vile things uh, you know I was I didn't, I didn't trust my wife I felt she felt more about her work than me you know she, did, she, she, you know, she loved the work and she enjoyed her workmates and, you know, she's bringing up the kids and doing a great job. But I made up all these scenarios about everybody, you know, so then I started working on who I could trust, who I couldn't trust. None of this was real. This is all just made up in my yeah. head, you know. I then started working out the people that were trying to manipulate the situation so that I would be gone so then they could muscle in on me family and everything I owned and that loved and, you know, this was all Made up in my head. It was ridiculous, you know. But that's why I went through. That's what I was doing. And, um, yeah, so because of that then, I started creating scenarios. made life so difficult for my wife and her work. And then one night we went out for a few drinks. We were work colleagues. We'd been to this place a year previous. And it, come midnight, it changed. The atmosphere changed in this place. And it was like the local pubs had thrown out. And they started going to this club, which was a very nice place. And I felt really uncomfortable the previous year. So on this occasion, I said to her, look, you know, I, uh, I don't want to be there at midnight because of how I am at the moment. I don't want to be in a situation. She said, no problem, we'll leave early. Everyone was going on a minibus. We went in the car so we could leave early. Mm. Anyway, quarter to 12 came. Wendy came up to me and said, "Right, uh, do you want to leave? And I was like, no, oh, you're all having a great time. She's with all her work friends and having a wonderful time. And I just didn't want to spoil it. So I said, no, we're all right, we'll stay. And three guys are come into the club, clearly hell-bent on spoiling someone's evening. They were that type of uh, character. And I watched, I watched across the club at the bar. They didn't buy a drink. They just turned their backs to the bar and were looking out, you know, clearly to cause someone trouble. Um, One of them turned to his mate and he said, watch this. And he walked around the bar and he basically thrust his hips into the back of my wife, knocking her onto the table. So at this point, my 15, 16 years of hatred of whatever happened to me came out. It came to the surface, which Wendy knew was always going to happen, just didn't know when, but this was the trigger. So um, I grabbed this fella by the throat and I sort of pushed him away. I was, why have you done that, you know? And he come back. He come back from war, but he was he was glazed over in his face, like he was on, on something. Like you know, um, I'm not an expert in that field, so I don't know. But then it was just he was going to get the blame for everything that had gone in my life. You know, so I just started to try. I tried to smash him up. I tried to punch him. There was a bottle on the on the table. Bear in mind, I'm, I'm not a fighting person. I don't I don't fight people. I don't. I can't even remember having a fight. I was probably at school. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, this is so out of character. You know, but at this point, I'm a raving lunatic. You know, so Wendy was screaming at me, the people around us. But the whole time I was trying to smash this bloke up, there was no reaction from him at all across his face. Nothing. Like, once again, I didn't matter. I'm, I'm trying to punch the hell out of him. And to be fair, I don't even know if my punches are eating. <laughs> you know, he might well he might have been laughing because I'm probably a rubbish fighter. like You know, His two mates. I remember them standing at the bar. Anyway, they eventually got me out. And in Wendy's mind at this point, someone the walked past her knocked her into a table and I'd overreacted but well, I know his acts were deliberate you know I, I watched him do it from that moment on Wendy hated me with a passion like I'd embarrassed her in front of her workmates which you know it was it was bad really really bad she found out when she got to work on the Monday that actually one of her workmates had seen exactly what I'd seen and was coming over but by the time she got there it had all erupted I think he attained everything. It took a long, long time for Wendy to get over that because I was on my downhill spiral, you know, downward spiral um, into depression. I've been systematically sort of spoiling Wendy's world, you know, as almost as often as I could, um, and it was mostly about attention. You know, you, you actually in complete reverse of how it should be done, but I wanted I wanted the attention. I weren't getting enough, as far as I was concerned, because I didn't matter. And that was it. At that point, she just said, you, you need to get to the doctor's. There's something seriously wrong with you. You know, you need to do this. Okay. And uh, there's lots of situations I can talk about around that, but it's, it's sort of a, a variation of a theme where I would just mess the whole thing up. you know. So eventually got my doctor's appointment, which was a massive moment. It took me weeks to even phone and book an appointment.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that. I can imagine it would take anybody a lot of effort to do that. You, you're almost... It's probably, I mean, my aunt, my aunt was an alcoholic
0: for, um, I mean, she was dry for the best part of 29 years, but um, she always said, like, I used to do a 12-step, and the first step was basically admitting the situation. And it's probably a similar process. You need to admit you've got a problem first, mm. which clearly I wasn't prepared to do. So what I'd done, I phoned the doctors on a pretense that I had a bit of an itchy chest. I thought that would get me in the door, you know, so, but it was a big moment. It was a massive moment. Number one, phoning the doctors was the first big moment, and it was almost like that was my first tiny little step to the road to recovery because I actually felt better. The following day I woke up and was I, like, you know, I felt a little bit better about myself. The appointment was three weeks away, by the way, so you waited for three weeks, and eventually the day came. And uh, it was my wife's boss. It was his brother. His brother was um, taken away from us very her short life, uh, taken away too early, and it was his funeral on that day. My wife was wanting to send him a text message. You know, she's saying to me, "You know, you're good with words. What should I say?" And Inside, I'm like, "I don't care. I actually don't care about this bloke. It's so hard. Right? The bloke's lovely. He's done me no wrong whatsoever. Like, you know, but I didn't. I really actually. I started to hate him. You know, why should he be more important to me? I'll go to the doctor's today. You know, to tell him I'm nuts. And you, you want to send a message to a guy who's going to a funeral? You don't even know the fella. You know, I was, I was so stupid. He was so ridiculous. And but I worked myself up into a bit of a state. I'm like, no, oh, this, this—you can't be caring more about someone else than me on this day. So, anyway, by the time I got to the doctor's surgery, I walked in, and I was, it's a big moment again. You just get in there; it's such a huge moment. And you press the screen. You do the hand sanitizer thing. You press the screen, and it comes up, and it gave a completely different doctor's name. So I went to reception and I said, uh, "Excuse me," I said, "I've got a Doctor, Doctor Fernandez." I said, "It says someone different on said, Oh yeah, he's training. Oh, in training so when i sat down i started working myself up like three weeks i've waited for this moment you know three weeks and now he's training i didn't even question what it was about was was it a trainee doctor in there was it my doctor training someone else i didn't actually ask the scenario i just worked myself up into a spirit of state. so eventually the name comes up and the bleeper goes off darren Bardham, room three off, I walk along open the door and just around to the right my doctor's sitting there in a temporary chair your little plastic chair and behind the desk was this fella I didn't know this trainee doctor I said oh come in there and have a seat well this was my moment right and they did spoil it basically so I said to uh, I went into a rage how they didn't phone the police I don't know so I just said to them that they both and there was a lot of swearing I mean I swore some. I had to go back three times to apologise I booked appointments just to go and apologise it was that bad and um, so I just basically said to them you know I've, I've come in here I've got a problem A problem with my chest. I, I didn't even have a problem with my chest, by the way. This was just, just, I said, but I've got a massive problem up in here, in my head, p- punching myself in the head. I said, you put some stranger in there. I want to talk to my doctor about my problems. And you've got a stranger sitting in this chair. Now I suggest you both get up, swap seats, or I'm walking out of here and you won't ever see me again because I'll be dead. I'm gone. They swap seats. <laughs> I mean, the doctors are brilliant. The pair of them, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, how I don't know if they get that sort of scenario every day, but you know, it was something I threw myself into. Uh, Yeah. I I, I was embarrassed. I was really, afterwards I was embarrassed, you know, and uh, the doctor very, very quickly realized there was nothing wrong with my chest. Right. He knew. So he said, let's deal with that first, you know, and he knew he was just, he was so good. And he said, "Right, what we do is we do this, we do that, and we'll get on to it. So so basically he just smoothed over it, pretended he basically sorted out the problem and he reached his hand out and put his hand on me there and he said, Right, what's what's the other problem, Darren? At that point, I fell apart. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. I like, literally I felt like I was being suffocated. I was crying. I then started getting angry. I was like punching myself in the head. I was calling myself all sorts of names. I was swearing a sham on myself, like almost in an out of body type experience. I was so, so angry. And he just sat there and he's fine, like, take your time, no problem at all and about corner to call me I could see this other training doctor probably seeing everything. maybe I should have been a chef like you know so uh, yeah so anyway just it, it, this was uh, this was also on a Monday funnily enough and he said to me um, he said look Darren he said I think you need a bit more time with me he said I'm going to give you a phone number he said when you leave here I want you to go home and phone the number it's for mind the charity
1: mm-hmm.
0: he said I want you to phone this number he said but I want you to come and see me Wednesday he said I'm going to put it, the appointment in now he said I'm going to block out some time so you get my undivided attention. I was like, oh, brilliant. That was easy, you know. So composed myself, left the surgery. Found Wendy on the way home, um, sobbing me eye because obviously it's another step in the in the road really? to recovery. Uh, got home, everyone was at work. Sat down, got the computer ready, and started to fill the questionnaire in for Mind, which was where the next series of problems began. You know, so. I'm now telling a computer... Oh, first of all, I phoned the number, um, which was engaged. Uh, sorry, I had an answer phone. This his mind. at your lowest point. You're on the verge of taking your own life, and you get an answer phone. Then it says, if your matter's urgent, go online. I mean, Surely <laughs> if it's urgent, I need to speak to someone. So anyway, I went online. And the whole reason is mind hasn't got enough funds. It hasn't got enough people to be able to deal with this for everybody. But I didn't care about it at the time. So I started fill in the question out on, on the computer and he it starts asking you questions, you know, how often do you feel like this? How often do you think this? How often? And he's like, is it, you know, once a month, once a week, once a day, once an hour type scenario, you know? And, and as I'm filling this out, I've, I was just crying my eyes out because I actually realised I've got a problem because I'm feeling like this all the bloody time. You know, this, you know, this on the edge of taking your own life situation was a very
1: real fault i once again don't want to be flippant but but as far as suicide goes had you planned how you would kill yourself no this is the thing um
0: i've not actually planned how i was going to do it but i'd already worked out what the impact was going to be okay so i knew and i could have told you to the day i die on this day funerals this day wendy goes back to work on this day kids go back to work on this day I could, I could have told you, I mean, obviously I've just made it all up, you know, at the time, but yeah. I knew, I knew exactly what was going to happen. So I'd, I'd planned the aftermath, but not the actual event, which apparently I've been told is a good thing. Yeah. So it is a good thing. So yeah. so obviously wasn't as low. I knew I was going to do it, but I hadn't worked out how, you know, yeah. so I probably wouldn't even know if I was being honest. That you know, no, was right. I mean, be, you know, yeah, so, no, I'm, I'm asking. So, uh, my, yeah. my missus is a
1: Samaritan and um, I, I asked that because she'll want to know. Yeah. I just out of interest.
0: Yeah, no. So don't, I've not got to that stage, how it's going to happen, but I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. so. Anyway, I, I filled out this question and as I filled it out, right at the very end, a little box pops up and says, um, Darren, we're, we're very concerned about your welfare. Someone will be in touch within 24 hours. 24 hours. Okay, it's a start. Anyway, some four years after, when I started raising money for the Mind and Victim Support, no one had ever been in touch. No one had ever called, come back to me. No one had ever responded, phoned me, messaged me, emailed me back or anything at all. You know, you just, that was it. I filled this questionnaire in. That was probably, if I had to pick out some low moments of that during that period, That filling that questionnaire in was probably one of them. Yeah. And for me, the, the fact no one ever got back to you, you know, and it's not their fault. They're not, you know, I'm not holding them responsible, you know, because I've only got a certain amount of funds and a certain amount of people to be dealing with this, you know, which was why I then went on my campaign to try and raise
1: money for them, you know, as I did and raised several thousand for them. So, but you see, despite all that, you managed to get through your depression, now, didn't you? So,
0: yep. I, um, the doctor prescribed me some tablets, 50 milligrams of Cetraline, and he said to me, he gave me two months worth, and he said, you need to take one of these a day. And uh, I went home and I was not being beaten. So I was not taking a tablet, you know, he was wrong as far as I was concerned at the time, you know, he's got this completely wrong. I don't need these tablets. I'll get this sorted. So the tablets basically got kicked around the house. They were on the mantelpiece. They were on the side. They were in the bedside cabinet. They were in the living room underneath the TV. They just kept getting moved around the whole time, you know, and he was, it was me avoiding it. And, uh, Anyway, we went to Wendy's mum and dad's for Christmas dinner. Oh, it was boxing day, but we went there for Christmas dinner. And the girls went out into the kitchen. And uh, I was sat there with Wendy's dad. And he was, you know, he was, elderly. He was in his 70s at the time. And he had a really bad cold for about three or four weeks. And he was really getting him down. And he just looked me in the eye. And, and this is where people know. I think they know what they're doing, even if it's subconsciously. Sometimes they, they've got a point. And he just looked at me and he said, I don't prepare you for this in old age. And I said, what? He said, it's being unwell. He said, they don't they don't prepare you. And I still believe to this day, what he was saying to me was, sort yourself out because I ain't always in a beer. You need to look after my daughter without saying those words. Yeah. And it was a real trigger moment for me. Oh my God, if anything happened to him, I can't even look after myself. How am I going to look after a grieving wife? You know, it's just lost. And suddenly it was like, sort yourself out. You need to do this. And my friends were coming down the following day uh, from Yorkshire and I woke up in the morning and uh, me and Wendy sat down and I, I took the first tablet and it was like a almost a celebration now what I didn't realize was it takes sometimes two months for these tablets to kick in yeah but as far as I was concerned I'd be better by the afternoon you know so uh <laughs> pop the tablet life's a good one, you know and it was it was onwards and upwards from there but it was literally the following day when I took the second tablet I was actually looking forward to it It was like well I need to go and take my tablet it was a completely different mindset, and it was it was that moment on Boxing Day with my father-in-law when he just said, "You know, you need to be looking after yourself and looking after me daughter." You know, or, without using those words, and for me, I think probably saved me from myself. You know, that moment was probably the turning point. You know, there was there was lots of moments after that. Yeah. You know, my um, daughter tell me about one. She's sitting me now, when we went went up to London, and uh, I'd actually forgotten to take the tablet. Right, and as we're driving up to London, I've been on the tablets a while at this point. Um, we were going to see a friend's daughter in a band and we, we was having a really nice night. We see the band, we were walking along, we decided to go and get McDonald's after. And uh, we we're in McDonald's and I had to wait for me food. So, but I was waiting a long time. And It's McDonald's, in a fast food place, you know. So, uh, as I'm waiting there, I'm like, I said to the young girl behind the counter, she was being really nice. I just said to her, like, you yeah, know, any chance? She's here. Yeah, we're just waiting for this, just waiting for that. And then she went and got part of my order put it in a bag, put it on a hot plate thing. She said, right, you will be with you in a couple of minutes. Brilliant. One of the other guys behind the counter walks along, looks in the bag and takes out the food and serves it to someone else in McDonald's. I'm like, this is trigger point. Like this this is my moment to ruin the night. Right, So I've gone, excuse me, that's my food. Right? Bear in mind, he's working behind the counter. And he's just went, what, what? I said, that's my food, that's... So, this poor girl who was serving me was done no wrong. She's done nothing wrong. I'm going, he's just stolen my food. I see he's taken, and she's, and they haven't got a clue what I'm on about. So, he's just taken my food out of that bag. I'm going, and he's walked off and given it to someone up there. That's why I've been waiting here 10 minutes. And I just started going into this rage. Shannon came over. She was trying to pacify me. The, the shop started getting a bit sort of agitated because I was raising my voice and I was getting aggressive. And the guy behind me said, Oh, right, mate, calm down. Like, well, calm down there was a lot of swearing going on how about you calm down and go away like you know what I mean I said mind your own business and then some woman at the back of the queue went your aggression is making me feel sick so I was like make you feel sick love so I then given her a tirade of abuse I was complete embarrassment absolute embarrassment I mean we laugh about it now because obviously no no harm was done Um, eventually they basically rallied all this food together and got it to us and sort of get rid of me put me over on this table and I just I threw it through the while, I couldn't even eat, you know, I was just, was like, the whole night, was, we had such a good night, and in this little trigger moment, and you know, I'd forgotten the tablet on that day, and whether it was the fact I'd forgotten the tablet or not, or it was playing on my mind, I don't think just missing a day, would necessarily have that effect, It's somewhere up in the head, it it was waiting to happen, maybe I knew, you know, um, so it was back on the tablets then, and never, I mean, trust me, no one was letting me forget, you know, certainly not my wife and kids, you know, that yeah. was like, you, you are having this tablet every day. We want to see you taking that tablet every day. And that went on for probably nearly a year. And uh, I've since found out the tablet's depression is, uh, is like a chemical imbalance in the brain. We, we operate, fluctuate as we go through life, happy and sad, happy and sad. And then uh, what with me, I was either very, very happy or very, very sad. So it needed to bring my levels back. And that's what the tablets are for, the simplest way, um, which it worked. And it absolutely worked. I started getting myself back to normal. I made the decision to stop taking the tablets. Um, didn't tell anyone. Just stopped taking them. Uh, Wendy went mad. She was like, "You can't just do this. You can't just stop taking the tablets." Come on, right? I, she said, "When was the last time you took one?" I said, "It was a week ago." See, I'm fine, like you know. She was furious, absolutely furious, because obviously, she knew I needed to go to the doctors and you need to come off these tablets. You know, you can't yes. just stop. Yeah. So she was like, right we was away at the time she said when we get back you're taking them again and then we'll go and see the doctors and see what he can do And uh, but from that moment on basically it wasn't it then didn't become a problem you know I'd, I'd gone through that that sort of circle that I needed to go a cycle that I needed to go from um, and started building my life again you know which I've done a couple of times previous and I just needed to, to do it there and then so
1: yeah that was it basically Excellent. Where, where are you now that's what I need to know
0: what that's all I need to know yeah where I'm at I'm enjoying life um, I'm enjoying my work. I'm enjoying the people that I'm, I'm with. The circles I'm moving, which are very different to what they used to be. I've now got um, a project which I think was probably needed. You know, so I wrote my book two years ago. Yes. Um, so when I wrote the book, it was one of the hardest things I've done because to write the book about my story, I had to paint a picture for the reader. So all the things we've spoken about today, I had to put down into. A, black and white which i've not done before yeah so i had to go through myself details that i hadn't even thought about or allowed myself to think about so the writing of the book was um i think they call it cathartic you know where you just you put it down and it's it was really hard i can remember one day typing and uh i was sobbing really crying my eyes out and uh, everyone was out and wendy came back in to the house and she just looked at me and she said I think you need to stop. And I'm like, but I'm enjoying myself, like you know, So because I was. I was <laughs> yeah. actually, but it was all coming out. So the writing of the book was a big moment. But when I wrote the book and I, I released it, I didn't really have a purpose. It was like, I've done it now. I've let, let as many people I, I know can. Um, I was lucky enough, I made it to best-selling author, um, which, was, which was really good uh, through sales. But I didn't really do anything with it. You know, I bought a new house at the time. I'd changed jobs, you know, as in my position at work so I've been promoted. But I really didn't have a purpose for the book. and It took considerable time to really get that purpose, which is what I've got this year. Um, I went to Mexico for a holiday in December. And it's saying I'd always felt I needed. That it was a real luxury holiday. It cost us quite a few thousand pounds. Um, we were on and treated like really important people you know, like I was some sort of multi-millionaire type person, you know, and it was just me and Wendy, it was just Darren and Wendy on holiday in the sun, but I felt so special. I felt like this is what I've been craving for. I needed this moment. And this was only December last year, so it wasn't that long ago. And it was like, you know what, this is it. I need more of this. I need to feel like this more and more. Unfortunately, what happened was I came back after Mexico and had a real bad January, like mentally I had a bad January. Really struggled with things, just life in general, but because I've spotted the symptoms before and some of the telltale signs, I knew I was going into it. So I managed to stop it very quickly. But I still needed to do something. And bearing in mind, I wasn't prepared for what was coming as none of us were from a pandemic point of view. But basically early on in this year, I'd always started working on things. So I wanted to create a YouTube channel where I could inv- interview people in, in these very chairs you know, who inspire others. But actually it was me that needed to do the inspiring. you know, For, for me as much as the people were on the receiving end and it was that sort of turn February time this year where I suddenly realised I could help Yeah, you know, my book had helped lots of people and I can tell you several stories um, uh, one guy in particular who read the book um, he messaged me and said Darren basically this is my story I was beaten as a child my mum was beaten by my dad I've, I've read your book he said oh, in adult life I've suffered with depression and anger he said I've read your book and he said, I'm going to go to the doctors and get myself sorted. He said, I need to get rid of this. He said, I was really pleased with this. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I was really yes. pleased. I was really proud that my story had helped him. I see him about nine months after, and he actually then told me the real story, which was he'd been beaten by his dad. His mother had been beaten. He'd suffered with bouts of depression in his adult life. He never touched his wife and kids in temper or anything like that. And uh, But anyway, he read my book on a Friday night. He had actually written his suicide notes to his wife and kids. He'd already had them written. He had a stash of pills and a stash of drink that he was taking that weekend. He read my book. And to this day, he now lives a happy and fulfilled life with his wife and kids. And he, will, if he was here now, he would tell you, I saved his life. I didn't in circumstances. But when we see each other, he hugs me like a long lost brother because That's great. it happened. And it's a brilliant moment. So looking back, I feel I could do more of that. If I can tell more people my story and more people that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a way around it, you know, and that's what I want to do with the YouTube channel. That's what I want to do with the with the book. And if I can now, I'm working on another campaign, as you're aware which is uh, change your life, put down your knife, where for many years, I've done fundraising and helps through for, for mind and for victim support, and I enjoyed that. But actually what I was doing there was I was helping people after the event. And in my mind, it wasn't good enough, you know, going around to victims of crime trying to sort of you know calm down get them back on the road to recovery putting them on the right putting in touch with the right people it was always after the event and i started thinking oh this is wrong you need to stop the event happening you know so what i'm doing with quite a lot of people that you're familiar with now as well is working with these guys if we can get the message out there that you know crime is not a way of life and the impact you're having on people's lives the hope is, and I know it sounds a bit idyllic, that we can prevent more victims of crime, and that's what I want to do. I've been given a figure of seventy percent of offenders okay. who leave prison reoffend. Seventy wow. yeah. percent. So that means if you've got a hundred thousand people in there, seventy thousand people of those coming out, they're going to create seventy thousand more victims or more. You know, it's a, it's a silly figure to be working with. You know, we seventy percent of offenders coming out reoffending, and there's no such thing as a victimless crime. There's no such thing. Whatever anyone tells you, we didn't hurt, we didn't do this, it's rubbish. There's victims involved. So, if I can now go to people and say, this is the impact you have on life, and make them think from a different perspective, and hopefully they then don't go committing the crimes, whatever their crimes were and their, their chosen route, if I can prevent that happening for me, I've actually impacted in a far greater way on the victims of crime, and hopefully from a mental health point of view and also from the victim's point of view it's a far better place to be living in in my opinion you know and like i say i can't change the world on my own you know this isn't going to happen overnight but if we can save you know one or two people 100 people you know from becoming victims and going down the road i went down if i can prevent that from happening then what's happened to me has been almost worthwhile you know so the journey i've been on has saved others you know so yeah that's where i'm at, at the moment In a from a real positive point of view
1: Thank you very much for listening. You know how much I appreciate it. You can go to the website, conversationswithcriminals.com, and my emailing list actually works now. It's taken me ages to figure it out because I'm not a techie guy and I do everything myself. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it. You know, I'm not only the host, but I'm the techie guy. I'm the producer. I'm doing all this myself. But it is going well, and I genuinely appreciate your support. Thank you to Darren Barden for being such a great guest and being so candid about everything. I have more podcasts coming up and I will very much look forward to speaking to you soon. So take care and bye for now.